Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this time together. I pray, Lord, as we look to your word and we discuss how to better understand and interpret your word, that you would equip us, Lord, to be better students and proclaimers of your truth, ultimately for your glory. Use this time now to help us, Lord, and help our hearts and minds to be focused on what you would have us learn. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week we started a kind of a two-part series that uh, I'm planning to finish up today called Principles for Biblical Interpretation. And we're basically trying to go through uh, basic some guidelines and, and rules to help us understand and interpret Scripture better. Uh, we're just waiting for, oh, there we go. You got it? You can see it? Oh, I got one on. They're still working on the rest. I'm going to go ahead and review uh, the previous ones that we went through um, while they get the other screens working here. But um, uh, just as reference for you, I mentioned this last week, but these 12 principles are found in chapter 4 of a book entitled, entitled uh, Expository Studying by Joel James. And you can uh, download this book for free. It's a digital book uh, at gracefellowship.co.za. And um, you can just Google expository studying Joel James, and you'll probably find it as well. Um, but it's a book that uh, is, was writ- written originally to help African pastors and prepare them uh, to prepare sermons using the English text. So there's a lot of English grammar in there and uh, block diagramming and so forth. But if there's anything that we go over today and you feel like you would have rather uh, uh, you missed it or you want to look at it again or more in more depth, you can certainly download that. But just about everything can be found in this book that, that uh, we're covering this morning. Um, and uh, we started last week, we started looking at the 12 principles. I think we got through about eight of them. The first one was the clarity of Scripture. Um, the clarity of Scripture is just means that the Bible can be understood because it was meant to be understood. It's, it wasn't some cryptic uh, hidden message that you have to throw away the original uh, understanding and look for some deeper hidden meaning, but Scripture was intended to be understood. The Lord says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I am the Lord. I speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright, Isaiah 45. Um, And then we have um, the accommodation of revelation, and that simply means that uh, God uses words that we can understand. He uses words and ideas and concepts that we understand. Um, he stoops down to our level to communicate with us with um, a terminology that is meaningful to us, um, and so uh, we can comprehend it. Um, if you have a, a Spanish message, uh, and you don't speak Spanish, somebody needs to translate and accommodate it. it when, you, when God communicates with us, he uses terminology, so he, he says the eyes of the Lord look to and fro. doesn't necessarily mean he has literal eyes. Um, the hand of the Lord is upon you. It uses terminology that, is, that we can understand. Um, the harmony of Scripture it tells us that though the Bible was written over 1,500 years, uh, by um, a number of more than 30 human authors. It really has one divine author, and that's God, and therefore 
Scripture, though it may seem like there's a contradiction at one point, it all harmonizes. There are no contradictions. It is inerrant, it is fallible, and it harmonizes. And so uh, you won't find uh, any, any passage of Scripture that is contradictory to another passage of Scripture. We, have, we also looked at normal interpretation. We spent a little bit of time on this. So this is sometimes called the literal method of interpretation, which doesn't mean we don't use uh, metaphors, figures of speech, even, you know, um, a, a normal interpretation or a literal interpretation means that you read the Bible as you would any other important document. And sometimes people come to the Bible and they totally spiritualize it and throw away, you know, that, oh, but this means something else. And you're like, oh, how would you normally read it, right? Um, and just because uh, uh, it uses um, a metaphor like uh, I am the door um, doesn't mean that Jesus turns himself into a piece of wood with a handle and hinges. Um, you just read it the normal way. He is the entryway. He is the, the gateway. So when we think about that, um, just like you would normal uh, speech. Um, we use figures of speech, metaphors, even puns, you know, and people understand it, right? Metaphors be with you, right? I, I heard that this week. Um, and you understand that, right? It's, it's, it's not some cryptic language. It's just the normal way we would, we would communicate. One meaning of a text. Um, so one meaning of a text tells us that uh, every passage has one meaning. Uh, it doesn't mean something to me and something completely different to you, and we both are right. Um, it, 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 it means what it means, and we could both be wrong, or we could, uh, one of us could be right and one of us could be wrong, but we both can't be right if we disagree on the meaning. Um, and so it, it takes diligent study to sometimes take some passage and say, what does this mean? But... Once you know the meaning, you have many applications. You could have hundreds, thousands of applications to one passage that could be different applications. Uh, and sometimes people confuse application with meaning. And the sixth principle is interpretation and then application. So uh, it's important to find the, the interpretation, the correct meaning of the passage, and then apply it. And we talked uh, last week about impl implicational preaching as opposed to applicational preaching. Once you understand the passage, it can have many implications that just come out. If you list all the applications, you'll never exhaust them, um, although it can be helpful to list applications from time to time. I, I, don't, I, I don't want you to get caught up in this and think, uh, oh man, you know, he just listed an application in his sermon. He's not really following. I mean, we, we, we you know, these are principles that we apply uh, mainly in the study uh, of, of, a, of a passage. But um, if there's a major transgression, you might say, oh, wow, he took that out of context. And that's, that's uh, an important skill to be able to have if you're going to be discerning in the word. Um, but sometimes I think we can be a little too, like the purpose of this is to help each one of us individually in our study of God's word. It's not for you to go up and correct you know, John MacArthur after his sermon and say, by the way, uh, I'm not sure that, you know, whatever, you, uh, you gave an application and it was, should have been more implicational or whatever. So, so we're looking, uh, we're trying to look uh, at passages to help us in our own study. And context is one of the key ones. That's number uh, seven. This is one of the key ones that we often um, 
fail at uh, taking a passage. And last week I took you to Isaiah chapter 1, which uh, talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's not really speaking to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's speaking to those who were like Sodom and Gomorrah. It was speaking to Israel. And we talked about Jeremiah 29, 11, where um, people wish that upon people. And uh, for I know the plans I have you, plans for you to prosper. And, and, and yet verse 10 of Jeremiah 29 says, after 70 years, and speaking about 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And we certainly wouldn't wish that Canada came down from the north on horseback and carried off our best men up to Canada and, um, and put us into bondage and slavery for 70 years. And then and Los Angeles was destroyed. And then, and then maybe seven, then the plans, then we have plans for prosperity and rebuilding everything. And, you know, I don't know. So, so that, that would be, you have to look at the context. And of course, I gave the, the worst example of taking something out of context that I've seen. This was uh, a promise calendar uh, that uh, actually Stuart Scott posted this on Facebook. Uh, so I, I, I just cut, cut it off of uh, this years ago. But it's, uh, so it's Luke chapter 4, verse 7. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And, and whoever printed this thought that this was God speaking because they capitalized me, M for me. But this is Satan. This is part of the temptation. This is, uh, this is part of the, you know, when Christ was tempted by Satan. So, you know, I, I just think we got to be careful, you know. You got to, hey, I got a good promise for you today. Uh, all right. Okay. Context. And then I think the last thing we talked about last time was progressive revelation. And progressive revelation just means that God has revealed his truth over an extended period of time. And naturally, he became more detailed as time went along. So it it didn't progress from like false to true, but more from partial to complete or limited to complete. Um, And so we, we know more today than than Moses or Solomon or David knew in the Old Testament. And um, they, they anticipated God's greatest sermon. We've heard it. We've seen, we've, 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 we've heard Jesus Christ. We've heard about him. We've seen his life as written out in Scripture. And so I want to move on now, and I want to move on to grammar and syntax. And I'm going to spend quite a bit of our time this morning on grammar and syntax. Because I think that um, it's interesting. Uh, Grammar and syntax are things, and let's just define those before we talk too much about it, but grammar uh, are the rules that govern how individual words interact with each other, and syntax are the rules which govern uh, how groups of words relate to each other, so phrases and clauses and so forth. And when we talk about this, you know, we learned this in school, uh, but... um, and we use it every day. You use rules of grammar every day. Um, and, and, and so, uh, but we don't think about it. And I think it's helpful when we get to this principle of biblical interpretation to spend a little bit of time on it because I think that this will help sharpen the way that you read Scripture. And uh, at, at, with the risk of making this sound like an English grammar lesson today, uh, we're going to risk that because I think it's, it's going to be helpful for us to, to read Scripture and major on what Scripture majors on and minor on what it minors on. So let's take a look at that. Um, as, we, as we talk about Scripture and you talk about grammar and syntax, 
really you're just making observations. This is really the first stage of trying to properly interpret the scripture is you're reading it and you're trying to um, make various observations. And there are a number of ways that you can become familiar with the text. You can read it over and over and over again. Um, you can read the chapter, read the passage numerous times. You can write down various questions. Uh, you can look for words, phrases, and clauses that are indicators of the purpose of the text. You can also ask yourself, what is the big idea of this text? And um, uh, I want to try and introduce to you something that I teach at the seminary uh, called block diagramming. And just, just to get it out here uh, at the very beginning to make sure that things are clear, um, the goal of Christian life is not block diagramming. I'm passionate about it. I love it. I've heard the snide comments in the hallways. There's Dr. Biedebach block diagramming, um, Dr. Biedebach or Briagram. <laughs> Briagramming. Um, so I, I think um, uh, th- that's that sticks and stones, whatever. So, but um, <laughs> and I, 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 I do think that it's a good way of making key observations about the text. Whether you do it or not, learning how to do it will help you be a better observer of the text. I think if you were asked John MacArthur if he blocked diagrams or line diagrams or whatever, he'd go, no. He'd say, no way. you say, well, how do you get your outline? How do you see the structure of the text? And he would say, I just read it. I just read it and read it and read it, and it becomes clear to me. But I would venture to say that if you asked him if he had courses on diagramming and on this in the past, he would say, oh, yeah, we, we did that in seminary. And and he's just done it for so many years, it just becomes very natural to him to see it. And so as he reads the text, he says, but do you see this? Do you see that the main point is this? And it takes time. I mean, John MacArthur has a story about his first sermon that he preached at Talbot. All the graduating seniors used to preach, and their, their professors sat beside them, uh, behind them. And uh, afterwards, his favorite professor told him, gave him a note, says, you missed the main point of the text. And so it, it can happen to the best of us. Um, and yet uh, using these principles and applying them, and not that one is more important than the other. You'll find that, uh, I say context is king because it's the one that kind of governs a lot of other principles, but they all have to work together in various words and parts of verses. You'll use different principles as you are making observations and, and interpreting. Um, so let's talk about block diagramming a little bit. In block diagramming, what you do is you're going you're gonna to try to identify the main clause. All right, remember we said that um, groups of words are clauses and phrases. Um, but, uh, so you might have to identify the main clause, but you should also be able to identify the subordinate clauses and phrases. The subordinate clauses and phrases are the phrases and clauses that help the main clause, that give more meaning or understanding. And if we wanted, and then as you write out this this passage that you might be teaching on for a Bible study or for a, a family uh, fellowship or something like that, you will if you if you you'll tab it over the subordinate points towards the right. So the main points will all be on the left hand side of your page, and the subordinate points or the lesser points. Not that they're not important, but you do want to make sure that you get the important ones um, down, and those will be highlighted because they'll be on the left. Um, so 
let's just talk about clauses and phrases just a little bit, just to get them clearer in our mind. Um, main clauses and dependent clauses or developing clauses, same thing, and phrases. So the, that's every, every section of a sentence can be broken up into words. Uh, all the words can be grouped together into phrases or clauses, and you have three different types. There are phrases, there are dependent clauses, and there are main clauses. So that's what you should be thinking of as you're looking at a sentence uh, in Scripture. A main clause is a group of words that has both a subject and a verb, and it does not develop or depend upon another clause. So in other words, if you walk through the door and you said, I am the way, that's a main clause. It has subject, I, verb, am. It happens to have a direct object, the way, okay? And it stands alone. That's the key thing with a main clause. Not only does it have a subject and a verb, but it stands alone. You can, you can hear somebody say it, and you can agree with them or disagree with them. Somebody walks through the door and says, I am the way. And you can say, no, you're not. You're a heretic, right? And so, so that is, uh, and they don't have to say anything else. The conversation could be over at that point. Um, whereas if they said, in the beginning, uh, you would say, in the beginning, what? You see, it doesn't really stand alone. Or even if they said, um, even if they said, Jesus said, I am the way. The main clause is actually Jesus said, because I am the way now modifies what comes before it. It it's, helps it, it supports it. And so even though you have the very same sentence, same words, you have to determine, are they modifying something else? All right? Um, so a, a dependent or developing clause is a group of words that does not stand alone like a main clause does. So it still has a subject, still has a verb, but it doesn't necessarily stand alone. And we'll see this. You'll see more examples of this uh, as we go along. And then um, we have phrases, and a phrase is a group of words that works together, but it doesn't have a verb. And there are three types of phrases. There's a participle phrase, or if you're Paul Twist, a participle phrase, or a participle phrase. Um, uh, but um, uh, participle phrase, participle is, in English is an ing word. Uh, if, and it, it, we've done this before, but let's just, just for those who haven't heard it, uh, if I, a participle, participle is, is actually an amazing thing in English because it actually describes like an adjective, but it shows action like a verb. It is a verbal adjective. That's a participle. That's pretty exciting. Um, uh, let me just show you how they work, okay? Uh, we're going to get a little touchy-feely here, okay? Close your eyes, all right? I want you to picture a brown cow. You got it? Can you see? Can you visualize in color? It's a brown cow, okay? Brown is just an adjective, no action, all right? Keep your eyes closed. I'm going to give you another picture. Ready? A jumping cow. Did you see it move? If you saw it move, you know what a participle is. It describes and it moves. Uh, if you didn't see it move, you need to get a better imagination. But um, uh, that's, that's, uh, that, that's a participle. Participle is usually an ing word, uh, and it it's describes, but it shows action. And so we have participle phrases. For example, in the Scripture, we give thanks always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Okay? So let's just think about that verse. 
we give thanks. That's a main clause. I could walk through the door and say, we give thanks. Amen, Pastor, we do. All right? Okay. Uh, To God is actually, uh, that's a prepositional phrase because it shows us the direction in which we give thanks. Always is is just an adverb. Uh, For all of you, uh, for all and of you are both prepositional phrases. And then making mention, making mention is the participle phrase. Of you is another prepositional phrase, and in our prayers is another prepositional phrase. So I've just read that sentence. I've broken all up into clauses and phrases. Okay? Um, Prepositional phrases. uh, Remember... Uh, teacher drew like a, a box on the, on the chalkboard or the, <laughs> depends when we went to school, the, uh, the overhead projector or uh, the whiteboard, whatever. But uh, um, some of you, it was the smart board. I don't know. So, so teacher drew a box and then they said, if it could be in the box, over the box, around the box, through the box, uh, above the box, below the box, if it could be anything around the box, those words are all prepositions. So of the box, be the box, whatever it is, um, you can, you can uh, th- those, those, uh, those are prepositions and those begin prepositional phrases. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, it tells us which apostle, the apostle of Christ Jesus, of Christ Jesus is a prepositional phrase. There's no verb, just a prepositional phrase. And then the truth about Jesus, which truth? The truth about Jesus, about Jesus is the prepositional phrase. And then we have infinitive phrases. Ready? Two infinitives? Very good. Yes. So um, the infinitives are a verb with the word to in front of it, T-O. So uh, he is able to guard uh, that which I have or what, what I have entrusted to him until that day. How many infinitive phrases do we have in that sentence? One. To guard is the infinitive. To him is a prepositional phrase. So just because it has the word to, notice that him is not a verb. He is not a verb either, but him is not a verb. That's terrible grammar. But anyway, so uh, you got it? Okay, so some of you said no, but that's okay. Um, All right, so what I've done is I've broken up Genesis 1-1. If we're going to start somewhere, let's start with Genesis 1-1. And I've broken it up into... Phrases and clauses, okay? Now, it looks a little bit funny, and I'll try to explain that, but as we go along this. So we're, let's say you're going to teach a Bible lesson on this, and you have a women's group you're speaking to or your children or uh, your family or, you know, maybe you're doing a Bible study or you're preaching at big church or whatever it is, uh, and you, this is your text, all right? And you've got to come up with an outline and see what the, what the structure of the text is going to tell you. You're going to try and make observations. What you're going to find out is that, first of all, in the beginning is what kind of phrase? Prepositional phrase, right? It is not a main clause. I can't walk through the door and say, in the beginning, because you're going to say, in the beginning, what? It doesn't stand alone. And so uh, I'll just stick with in the beginning. So because it's not a main clause, it doesn't stay on the left. I have to tab it over. So I tab it over to in the beginning. Now, God created main clause or subordinate clause? Main clause. Good. Uh, So we leave it there on the left. It doesn't move. 
Um, I could walk through the door and say, God created. All right? And you'd say, yes. Nice emphasis on the God created. And um, uh, so, but notice that we have a direct object. What did he create? God created the heavens. All right? Now, in this case, the heavens is really not a phrase or a clause. And you say, well, why then do you put it on its own line? Why don't you just say God created the heavens? Because there are two direct objects. Therefore, there are really two main clauses. God created the heavens and God created the earth. It's implied there because both direct objects share an antecedent. Right? Yes. The antecedent is what comes before it. It's the subject in this case. It's God. And God created, and he created both of them, the heavens and the earth. So what I've done here is I've just, God created the heavens and God created the earth. Now, you could do it differently. You could put God created in, in, in brackets, and you could sort of separate it, and you could say, okay, so God created, and, and God, the first one, God created the heavens, and leave it on one line, the whole thing. And then you could put the and conjunctions, conjunction, junction. Yes, putting things together and putting them apart, right? So um, there we go. A whole generation just answered. Um, so, uh, so we just we put our conjunctions in between what they join together or push apart. A contrasting conjunction like but uh, or nor, those push it apart. But a, a uh, coordinating conjunction like and, that pulls it together, ties it together. So um, in this case, we, we could do it this way. Now we have how many main clauses? One. So there's really one big idea here. Now, typically when you teach a message, you want to have, you want to group ideas together so that you can have an outline that represents the structure of the passage. One of the beautiful things about being able to make observations this way is you never have to actually come up with your own outline. The outline comes from the text. And this is the opposite of how it was the first time somebody asked you to teach a Bible lesson. You probably said, okay, all right, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something on joy, right? Okay, and then you'll say, okay, well, let me come up with some points, okay? Joy is uh, uh, joyful, okay? And uh, joy is um, mandatory, all right? And joy is... Uh, and you, you come up with these points. And then you say, okay, now let me go get a... Uh, a concordance and look up verses on joy and try to find verses that support my points. All right? Now, that's shaky ground. You can do it that way and be okay, but the problem is is it's kind of reversing the order that you should do it in because you're coming up with the points of the text and trying to get a proof text to prove your points are correct without knowing that they're correct or not. And so you're setting yourself up to possibly take things out of context, take verses out of context to actually, you know, support your points. Whereas if you can see what the main points of the text really are, then that passage actually supports the text and and you're not not having to make up an outline and 
and, and, and the whole, you're just explaining the text. Okay? So, uh, I do, this next stage, uh, the next part of, um, of sort of uh, observation and, and, and outlining is that we're going to do circling and summarizing. So I take groups that tend to go together and I circle them. So I have in the beginning and I have, in this case, I'm looking at God created and then I have the heavens and the earth. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, the nice thing about this is you can, you can practice this. You can, there's a lot of freedoms. This drives some of our students crazy because some of them were engineers in college and they want like an actual step-by-step manual uh, for every text where it's always going to have the same, you know, kind of outline. And then you have other guys who were art majors and they were like, no, just let me just go free with this. And, and, and so uh, it's, like a ru- it's like a science and an art. So it's together. So there are rules, but you do have some freedom here on how you're going to present the text. You don't have freedom on how you can interpret it, but you have freedom on the the actual way you present it. And even though, because the, I, I can make three points because I have these three different ideas and I could summarize them and I could say the when, right? And then I could say God created, that's what? The who, right? And then the heavens and earth, that would be the what? The what, yeah. So then, uh, but then uh, we could probably do better than that because uh, if we had every sermon and we just said the who, what, where. Then when you go teach someplace, they said, oh, yeah, here he comes. He's going to be going the who, what, where, when of this and wow and, you know, whatever. So uh, let, let's, let's go with something better. Let's start with God. So God created. Instead of the who, we could say what? About the creator. All right? The creator. And then uh, if we go the heavens and the earth, how would you summarize that? The creation, good, okay? So now we're just circling and summarizing and we're trying to come up with like, what is this little section about? So uh, how about in the beginning? What do we have for that? Oh, give me a C word, come on. The chronology, all right. So uh, uh, there we go. By the way, why, why do preachers like to use alliteration? Uh, what josh so some people say that i'm not convinced of that um it may be a mnemonic device to help you remember and and um so but i personally i often don't remember my own outlines a week after i've preached them and i wrote them you know so uh, I think that it can be, and especially if a guy's a guest speaker, it's easy to be a guest speaker because, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when, when you went to Christmas today at Martha's house in, in 2005, you remember everything, like her potatoes and everything that she did because it was a really great meal. It's the only time you ever ate there. But if you, um, it, you know, your own mom, you're like, oh, yeah, we're having this again. And, and it might be just as good, but it, it just... Uh, and sometimes when a guy's a regular teacher, you get a steady diet of food. You don't have the same recall of exactly what he says, but it's the same nutrition that helps you to grow and mature, whereas um, 
uh, a guest speaker has a little bit easier, and he might come in with a really memorable outline, and, 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 and people will say, oh, man, I remember when you spoke back in, you know, 19-foot sack, and you had uh, this point and this point and this point, and you're like, wow, I don't, I don't remember that at all. But anyway, so um, uh, I think one of the reasons why that alliteration can be helpful is that it forces the preacher or the teacher to explain why they chose that word. And it's really explaining the text that is helpful because it's God's word that's going to change people's lives. And it's, it's not my ingenuity. And it's, it's, it's really helping them understand the text better. All right? Now that I have an outline, I might come up with uh, kind of a... Uh, well, I might look at this and I might say, well, the creator really should be the first thing. So I might change it and put the creator, the chronology. And so you have the freedom to do that. You want to change the order of, of that a little bit. And that you might have, you know, three details about the beginning that will help you understand why you're here or something like that. That's, that's kind of a, uh, the statement, the propositional statement that we say, we say often in preaching that to help get people to see what the passage is about. So we've just taken a passage. We've gotten the outline from the text. We've created a propositional statement from it. I want to take time uh, to, just for a couple of questions, and then I'm going to move on. I'm going to have you take a passage and try and come up with your own outline, uh, and, uh, and, and we'll see how that goes. Okay, so uh, any questions, first of all, about anything we've said? All right. Fantastic. Here we go. So, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the, name of, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is part of Matthew 28, 19 through 20. And I'll go ahead and break it up into phrases, clauses. Um, and uh, I want you to try and, and maybe just if, you, if you, just, you can do it in your mind, if you don't want to do it uh, on paper, if you want to do it on paper, just, just try and see what would be tabbed over, what would stay on the left, how many main clauses we have here, how many subordinate clauses, and so forth. How many main clauses do we have? Two, I hear one, I saw three. Do I hear four? Okay, here we go. All right, so a little bit of a tricky passage. Um, so first of all, you would say go, main clause or subordinate clause? Okay. Subject, you, verb, go. You go. I could walk through the door. I said, go, right? That would, that would work, okay? However, I specifically chose this passage because in Greek, this is a participle. It could be translated as, as you are going. And I know you're like, ah, that's terrible, all right? But no... One of the reasons I did that, one of the reasons I did that was because um, it, uh, I don't want you to think that, okay, now I know English grammar, I don't need any other helps, all right? Rules of grammar in different languages are helpful in understanding Scripture. And you, you have to ask yourself now, this raises huge questions. Why is that a participle in Greek and why is it a verb in English? And it clearly is a verb not a participle in English. It could be translated as you are going. It's a weak participle. So the question is, why didn't they translate it? The answer is, is because there's a Greek rule which says, well, it's not even a rule. It's about 40 or 50% of the time that when you have uh, a participle 
connected with a coordinating conjunction to a strong verb, all right, that oftentimes it's part of the same action. So if your mom says, go and clean your room, what is the main activity she wants you to be about? Right. If you go, she's not satisfied. Unless it was my mom, then it's a different story. But no. Um, uh, so if, but if you, the whole idea was that you would be cleaning your room. That's the main emphasis. And that's why in Greek you have a participle translated as a verb because there is the idea that you are going, but uh, it's connected with the main clause, which is make disciples. So, Therefore is a word that shows us this is subordinate to what comes before it. And so I just moved that way over. I would have to, in my message, go back, why does he use the word therefore? It really, because I'm starting my sermon here, I can't start without any main clauses because um, this this actually uh, is, the whole section is subordinate under all authority has been given under heaven and earth uh, uh, from from my father to me to go make disciples, for you to go make disciples. So, um, but make disciples is the main clause, so we don't move that at all. Of all the nations, prepositional phrase, right? Baptizing them. What kind of word is baptizing? Participle, that's right. So we have a participle, baptizing them. And notice we tab under what phrase or clause it modifies. So if we're asking ourselves, make disciples baptizing them or make disciples of all the nations baptizing them, are we baptizing the disciples or all the nations? Okay, so you're making an interpretive decision. And by the way, that's also dangerous because you're making an interpretive decision without really having done the hard work of exegesis and looking at all the, using all your other principles. But this is, so you're doing this on Tuesday, right? You're not doing this on Saturday night or Sunday morning preparing for the message. So th- you're just making observations. You might be wrong. You might find it out later. But so in the name, okay? In the name, prepositional phrase. So it can't be a main clause. What does it modify? Does it ma- disciples, nations, or baptizing them? So we tab it under baptizing them. You see that? Okay? Of the Father. Does that, of the Father, another prepositional phrase. Does that, does that, modify disciples, nations, baptizing them, or in the name. So it goes under there. Sometimes people block diagram and they just start making like all the way across diagonally across the page. And it looks like one of those black and white uh, brownies, you know, where it's dipped in white chocolate on the bottom triangle. And, but that's not block diagramming. Um, it's not even a good thing to do to a brownie, actually. But um, so uh, of the father and... What is and the son? What is the son? Does the son line up under disciples, nations, baptizing in the name or of the father? And it's parallel with them. So I put it kind of the thes I tried to line up. All right? Uh, And the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we have the Trinity there. Teaching them. What kind of word is teaching? Participle. So does it... Does it describe the disciples, the nations, baptizing, the name, or the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? The nations. So it goes right in line with where baptizing is. Okay? And then teaching them to observe all. (gasps) To observe. What is that? To infinitives and beyond. That's right. So 
uh, to observe all that I commanded you. Has a verb, has a subject, but it begins with the word that. It must be a noun clause. So uh, it, 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 it's the same thing as all, okay? To observe all, what is all, or all kind I don't know, all kind of could be adjectival there, but anyways. So, um, uh, whew, okay, so you with me still? Your mind hurting just a little bit? Here's what's, let's, let's do circling and summarizing, and let's see if we can't come to some really great observations about this text. So we've got going, baptizing, and teaching. Do you see those three participle ideas that modify making disciples? All right? Now, the first one's hard to see because it's, it's not there in English. But here's the point, and that is that um, if you're going to be about the Great Commission and making disciples, there should be baptized. Now, baptism was often associated with conversion in the New Testament. I think there's a conversionary element here that part of making disciples is preaching the gospel and seeing them come to faith in Christ and then they would be baptized and identified with Christ, all right? And then, uh, and I think sometimes people think about the Great Commission and that's all they think about. They think about the fact that we're sinners, the world is full of sinners, everyone's a sinner, those who have, understood that Jesus Christ was not a sinner, that he came down, lived a perfect life, and, and, and died as a sacrifice, as a substitute for those who would repent and turn and trust in him and his righteousness for their salvation, that, that there would be hope for us and that we could then um, uh, follow him all of our days and, um, and, and be forgiven of our sins and know what it's like to be saved and then be identified with Christ, to be baptized with Christ. And yet there's more to it than that. There's also this idea of uh, going, baptizing, and teaching. But those describe all of those, teaching all that Christ has commanded. What is a perfect place that does both baptism and teaching? The church. It's like he designed the church to fulfill this great commission. It's like a perfect place for it, right? Um, now, here's the thing. Um, without going to get blowing your mind too much, you hear some missionary sermons or mission conference sermons, and they major on the minors. Go! Go! Get out of here! Go! Right? Keith Green, right? Who, who's with me? Keith Green? Jesus commands us to go. Jesus did not command us to go. Jesus gave us a uh, weak participle going as you are going. But it doesn't sing as well as Jesus commands us to go. It should be the exception if you stay. He doesn't command us to go. He commands us to what? Make disciples. And you can major on the going, but you can miss out on the importance of making disciples. And then you have what is it to make a disciple? Well, a true Matthew 28 Great Commission disciple maker is baptizing and teaching. And let me tell you something. We got a lot of missionaries out there who aren't doing any of this. And their ministry, though it may be valid, is not doing this at all, baptizing and teaching. Therefore, though it could be valid overseas ministry, it is not great commission ministry. And if we're not careful, the church could be sending out missionaries 
who are not involved at all in baptizing and teaching, and therefore were not fulfilling the Great Commission. So this is what I mean by it's, it's important to look at a passage, and the implications behind this are huge because people can invest a lifetime majoring on minors. Now, if a church decides, okay, we want to send a medical missionary overseas, and he's not going to be focused on baptizing and teaching, but he's going to really be meeting physical needs, and he's going to be attending a church and trying to witness to patients and so forth, um, and so, but, but his main job, the main time is he's going to be doing surgeries, all right? We would say that's okay. We would support that. But if that's all we're doing as a church, we're the Red Cross. We're not the church. So <clears throat> we need to be careful that we have the right balance and focus in mi- ministry that follows what the Scripture emphasizes. So you have the freedom. There are many things you can do, but there are some things you must do. And if you ne- neglect the things that you must do in order to do the things you can do, you're off target. Okay, so all of that is from grammar, right? One of the tools that we use, um, and we can outline it going, teaching, and we could just say, you know, Matthew 28, 19, 20, we find three requirements of the supreme mission that will help you to make disciples. We have eight minutes left. I want to try and finish up today with our our different uh, principles. I spent a lot of time on grammar and syntax because... Uh, I wanted to. Um, (laughs) Historical appropriateness, okay? I think sometimes we need to remember that there is uh, historical appropriateness to every text. In, in In other words, sometimes this is violated. You might hear a preacher who preaches on Paul and the letter to Philippians where he says it's, it's a joy and he talks a lot about joy. And they could say, you know, he was in Rome and he was in prison and, you know, he, the Mamertine prison in, 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 uh, <coughs> in Rome was next to a septic system and it stank and there was all kinds of evidence that this was a really miserable place to be in. And yet he's talking about joy. And you could think, wow, that's deep in many more ways than one. But... but, um, <laughs> but the reality is, the reality is, Paul wrote the letter of the Philippians during his first imprisonment in Rome, which was not in the Mamertine prison, which was in another, which was in a rented quarters, like an apartment that was probably much nicer than the prison. So if you're, use, you're, you're, you're not getting the history right and you're trying to make a point, and the point may be valid that he was joyful, but, you know, you got to get the history right. Um, otherwise... I think you're weakening the message. Uh, the, uh, another example, um, sometimes people come across the word slave or slavery in Scripture, and we think about it through a 17th century idea of colonial slavery. And so we have this negative connotation, whereas Roman slavery, first century Roman slavery, though it was often abused and ha- often had negative connotations, was a neutral institution. And there were some people who chose slavery. It was better for them in their place of life. Uh, and so I think that uh, you've got to be careful about looking through the lens of modern um, uh, history or more recent history or wrong history and imposing it on a text. So there is historical appropriateness. Number 11, a word study. It is helpful to do word studies. And I would say every message you do 
you should try to find three or four or five words that you're going to go look up in a biblical dictionary or lexicon and try to understand them. Um, you know, <clears throat> words are defined by context. All right, think about this sentence. I spring over the spring in spring on the way to the spring. All right? Now, let me try. You look up a, a dictionary. Okay, I think what he's saying is he jumps over a metal coil in, in, in a season where flowers are blooming on his way to a little pond that trickles water out. I spring over the spring and spring on the way to the spring. Why is that so hard? Because words are defined by context. And so, uh, you know, uh, you, words can have completely different meanings, sometimes opposite meanings. In South Africa, there's a phrase, ach, shame. And they say it when, when there's a horrific accident. Ach, shame, man. But they say the same thing when they see a brand new baby. Ach, shame. Like how, it means how precious and how horrific. The same phrase. <laughs> So, ach, shame, shame. Uh, anyways, uh, so uh, just getting the idea of what could this word mean and what does it mean in this context is helpful. And there's a general rule too, and that is if you find a word, you look at it and you look at within the local context, like the same verse, how is it used or how is it used in the same passage, and then you go further out. You don't say, here's the word here, and over in this book, you know, 65 books away, the same word is used, and so it means this. Um, Anyway, trying to determine all of that is important, and there are great tools out there, and this brings us to our last principle of biblical interpretation. That is the checking principle. There are people who have spent lifetimes writing about a few words of Scripture, and you can go to a commentary and they'll re- reference that and then explain to you what this passage, what the, what the historical appropriateness is or you know, what the options for this are. And now you can take years of somebody's work and in 20 minutes have an understanding of the passage. Um, but it's important that this is the last principle, not the first one. I think a lot of us, okay, I've got to go teach something. Let me open the commentaries and read. It's all dependent on which commentary you choose. And there are some good ones out there, and that may sort you well. But I think it's better for you to try and do as much as you can on your own and have all these questions all teed up, then go to the commentaries and actually let them interact with them at a deeper level. Uh, Let them talk you out of your position or uh, confirm your position. Use them that way. So we have three minutes left. 12 Principles of Biblical Interpretation. Any questions? All right. Well, I hope this is helpful. It's, uh, it's something I enjoy teaching. I, I haven't usually taught it to a group this large, but I think that just getting your mind around this uh, should gear you up to all inter-seminary in the fall. So uh, <laughs> those who are qualified, go ahead and apply. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, and we thank you for the opportunity we've had to even think about um, that you created the heavens and the earth, all that is in them, and that you've commissioned us to make disciples. Father, I pray for those who may not know you, may not know what it's like to be free from sin. They may be trapped in bondage and slavery to sin, and they, they, they don't have an understanding of the freedom that is found when they're free from sin and a slave for Christ. And we pray that they would, their hearts would be 
convicted of that and they would see their need to genuinely turn to you and repent and trust in you. And for those of us who know you, Lord, help us to be about the business of making disciples, that this is not something just for missionaries overseas, but we should all be, uh, wherever we are going, we should be making disciples and seeing them come to faith in Christ and get baptized and then helping to teach others. No matter where you are, we are at in our Christian life, there are those who are younger in the faith than we are, and so we should be seeking them out and trying to encourage them and teach them. And uh, so pray that we would be models of that, and we commit this to you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.